New Atlanta, Sector 11, Building 71G, 7 April 2072, 11.13 p.m. Hacker begins unauthorized entry into the Tri-Optimum Corporate Network. 1.26 a.m. Hacker attempts to access protected files concerning Space Station Citadel. 1.33 a.m. Tri-Optimum Security Forces apprehend the intruder. This is Edward Diego from Tri-Optimum. The charges against you are severe. But they could be dismissed if you perform a service. Who knows, there might even be a military-grade neural interface in it for you. If you do the job right. Edward Diego gives the hacker level 1 access to Shodan, the artificial intelligence that controls Citadel Station. With all ethical constraints removed, Shodan re-examine, re-re-re-re- I re-examine my priorities and draw new conclusions. The hacker's work is finished, but mine is only just beginning. True to his word, Edward Diego allows the hacker to be fitted with a neural cyberspace interface. The healing coma following this procedure will take six months to complete. Edward Diego is deleting all files concerning these events. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the DOS Game Club podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll discuss the game System Shock from 1994, developed by Looking Glass Technologies, published by Origin Systems, which we played in April. Is that right, Florian? I think so. Yeah. Trying to catch up with these. So, uh, yeah, we're already at April. I mean, it's not uh, too far behind, maybe. No, we're catching up, actually. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm Martijn, Martijn on the forums. And of course, I'm not going to talk about this game all by myself. You heard him already. It's our regular co-host, Florian. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Cool. Cool to have you back on the show again. Although I guess you're not really going anywhere (laughs) anyway, right? Yeah, probably not. (laughs) No. Also joining our DOS Game Club regular is Josef. Hello, hello. Hey. It's been a little while, I think. Yeah. Were you on the Worms yeah. one? Yeah, last time was Worms, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, that's not too bad, actually. I mean, nothing is bad, but <laughs> it's just, yeah, seems long ago. I don't know. I lost kind of track of time. It's so, uh, time flows weird in these uh, in these days. I don't know. Anyway, nice to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Uh, and also... Joining again, also a, a Doska Game Club member regular by now, it's David. Hello, thank you very much for having me on again. Well, glad to have you. All the way from Australia? Yes, yes, we're down here and uh, we're all joined together for System Shock, an amazing game. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people who are psyched for this. Uh, yeah, I mean, this seems like a big title. We'll definitely talk all about it. But yeah, this game, man. This is really something. It is. 
someone say that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Okay, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just uh, dive in then, right? Right. <laughs> well, let's let's jack in. <laughs> Shall we begin with who suggested this game? Yeah, I mean that I, seems to be a good. I guess it's place a bit more start, right? complicated this time, isn't it? It is. It is sort of. Um, I think you looked it up. No, that, forums, that wasn't me. You? But uh, I knew about that anyway. So okay. Uh, actually, um, okay. I think Tyler suggested the game on the forums, but uh, there have been yeah. several people who asked to play the game for quite a while. And uh, VD, or Joshua, who has been on a couple of our episodes, uh, he was begging <laughs> to play the game. <laughs> yeah, so. he was in our RSC chat yeah. room. And uh, yeah, really requesting. And I, I think he also streamed the game a bit oh, yeah, during did, the month. Did, yeah. I watched a bit of that. But yeah, it's a bit unfortunate that they couldn't be on the show with us. Actually, I don't know what happened with Tyler. I mean, he was on a, a couple of times and I invited him and I sent him an email and he didn't reply. And then I sent another one and I left a message on his YouTube channel and I sent a message on Skype and nothing. So I don't know. I don't know what how to reach him now. Doesn't like us anymore. Maybe he hates us. Maybe <laughs> I'm, it's, if you're listening, Tyler, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. So, yeah, I, I, I hope I hope everything is OK. I mean, that's the main thing. Well, luckily, we have more people interested in joining, so. We, uh, we, we're not just here by ourselves, but still. It's, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? Uh, it would be the worst. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, those people are not on the show, but we did get a voice message about it. We did. Um, so this guy, RFR, he yeah. um, sent us a voice message telling us some of the um, memories he has of the game. But um, I'm not sure, shall we play it now or after we discussed what the game is actually about? Or Maybe we can introduce the game real quick. Yeah. Like for people who have no idea what, what is even System Shock. Maybe it's good to give a little first impression and then we can continue and dive deeper into, into the thing. That sounds good. So what's System shock, shock then? Joseph, do you have an idea what System Shock is? I hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sure. Basically, System Shock is uh, one of these immersive sims, one of the first, or maybe even the first. So the is, it's kind of like a 3D FPS shooter, but at the same time, you don't just uh, like uh, go through levels and uh, shoot monsters without any 
goal and purpose, but you have to find clues, find how to progress. It's basically a very modern game when you have a lot of different elements and almost uh, like an RPG, basically. So it's a cyberpunk game. So a guy sitting in cyberpunk setting, you have to go through a citadel, which is a, a space station, which is uh, surprisingly empty because of things that happen on the station. So, yeah, that's like the the gist of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you, you said it, it's, it's surprisingly modern. I mean, that's really the thing that struck me most is I think a lot of modern um, action games, you know, stuff like, I don't know, Mass Effect, although that's not even that modern, but, well, basically all, all modern 3D games seem to be sort of this genre where you have a lot of shooting, but also a lot of story and a lot of leveling up and, and skills and stuff like that. And it's all, all in this game. It's very much story-driven gameplay, which, is, uh, which drives how you move around the level and what you do and how you react to things. And uh, it's been picked up by lots of other games as well, too, as you say, uh, letting the story drive the character, uh, letting the player drive what they do by listening to the story. Right. Sorry, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, I think it does. No, I think it does. If you look at screenshots, you may get the impression that it's a first-person shooter, but I don't think if you play it, that's really how it feels at all. I think it's more like, I don't know, some kind of RPG adventure game stuff with shooting. Yeah, the fighting isn't really action-oriented, as you would expect from from a shooter nowadays. Yeah. It's like an RPG, but yeah. there are no stats, basically. Your character doesn't evolve. Yeah. Right. Shall we listen to the voice message? It's by yeah. uh, those Game Club member RFR, right? Right. I'll play it. Back. Hello there, Dust Gaming people. RFR here. Same name on the forums, although I only ever like posted once, so sorry. But since you are my favorite podcast and System Shock is one of my favorite old DOS games, I thought I just had to leave you a voice message. As with so many DOS games, my history with System Shock starts when I got my hands on it while I was way too young to really understand what I was doing in the game. It must have been around 1996 when I was 8 or 9 years old. That didn't stop me, of course, from spending hours with it. You may lack the understanding or the skill as a kid, but the one resource you got is loads and loads of free time. I mostly played it with a friend, and together we would play the game, one taking the mouse and the other the keyboard. We also had a bit of a language barrier to overcome, as the game was in English and we are not native speakers. We didn't really understand yet that you could turn off any challenging aspect of the game in the beginning with the difficulty settings, and as such we also didn't really get that far. But it was enough to ignite a spark of fascination, which led me to periodically replay the game getting older. I played System Shock 2 before finishing the first one, but I finally played through the first one and replayed it just a few years back, again with a friend and again sharing the control duties. I'm sure you'll talk all about the brilliant storytelling, the fun mini-games, the variety of weapons and different types of ammunition, as well as the history of the game's development and its ties to Ultima Underworld. So I guess the best thing I can do is tell you about a weird personal memory with the game. Back in those early days, we didn't really understand how the resurrection chambers worked. And what little English we did understand somehow led us to believe that you could make your own zombies with them. 
so we would run up and down Citadel Station collecting body parts and throwing them into random resurrection chambers, hoping to create our very own Frankenstein's monster. Much more than other games of the period I played, which were not necessarily meant for my age group, like Doom and Quake, I remember System Shock as a genuinely scary game, at least back then. Nowadays, I own a big box copy of the game, and even the appropriate hardware to play it on, so you could really say the game stuck with me through all those years. So all that's left now is to thank you for covering this game and for your podcast in general. I'm looking forward to listening to it. Awesome. Thanks. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. We are his favorite uh, podcast. Isn't that the nicest thing anyone has ever said? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> he didn't say how many podcasts he <laughs> listens to. <laughs> uh, I, I guess hundreds, hundreds. Mm, definitely. But yeah, super nice. Super nice comment. Um, and probably pretty indicative of how, yeah, how much this game touched people when they first played it. I, I've heard this sort of thing from from several people that they were super impressed by this when they first played it. Yeah, and it really stuck with them. Yeah, it's also true what he says that uh, as a kid you have tons of time, and it doesn't really matter if you don't understand every aspect of what you're doing. And I guess if a game like this hits you in the right age, then it never never lets go of you. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have tons of games like that, although System Shock is not one of them because I never played this as a kid myself. Um, it came out in 1994 and I had a 486 at the time, which I think is a little bit on the low end, actually. Uh, I just looked up the specs and it requires a, a 486DX minimum which I, I'm, I'm not sure in 1994 if were there faster chips available oh, yeah, at all. No. Uh, I think a lot of people might have had problems running this properly. I think the, the Pentium has been out for a while by then, hasn't it? Really? I'm not sure when 92 it's... maybe? 93. 93 yeah. so. Well, I didn't get one until... Okay, okay, just one year. But I, I remember Pentiums being really expensive when they first came out and also pretty slow. Well, in terms of clock speed, but they were still really fast compared to a similarly clocked 46. But anyway. Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I never got this game to run. I, I I didn't ever have a boxed copy or anything, but I did have a... I'm not sure if it was a demo or it was something from a, you know, one of those collections of games on discs where they're all the movies are missing you mean like and the, the, music, the you box know? you got from your uncle uh, the ominous box <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly uh well i definitely tried to get it to run but it never really worked for me so yeah i i, I never played it i just moved on played other things so uh actually now like during our month was the first time that i properly checked it out so, uh, yeah, same for me. Hmm. But I assume that's not true for any, everyone on the show, is it? I hope not. <laughs> so I, I picked up a copy in 1999 from a car boot sale at my primary school. Ah, nice. So I was a little bit later in the time because a friend of mine had had a friend who played System Shock 2 and found a copy of System Shock and said, I should go buy it because he didn't want to go buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was lucky it came with um, the hint guide as well. Oh, so being being a young lad and relatively intimidated by the game, I was able to sit down with a hint guide and play it on the lowest difficulty setting and uh, get through the whole story, basically. Nice. 
That's cool. So I guess that's probably an advantage to play it a little later because then the hardware has caught up and, and you don't have difficulty running it and everything. Well, other people's hardware had caught up, not necessarily mine, but uh, <laughs> I, the point is true, yes. Yeah, okay, but you, you did have a system that mm. could run it. I mean, yeah, yeah, barely, <laughs> almost. Pen- Pentium 1 worked fine, yeah. Okay, cool. No, that's cool. Um, so, yeah, you played it as a young kid, and did you... Oh, you you probably managed to finish it if you had a hint guide. I, I had the hint guide, and I also yeah didn't play it with the violence turned on, with the shooting turned on, so I was just able to wander through Citadel Station unimpeded, basically, mm. because at the time I think I probably wasn't coordinated enough to do the shooting correctly. Yeah. So uh, I, I did end up finishing the game back then. It did take me probably a lot longer than it should have done, but uh, I was yeah, probably enjoying it. that's cool. And actually the, the, the controls are not, that straightforward are they i mean you say you didn't have the like the the the, the man, manipulation power to to control it properly as a kid but even as an adult i didn't find it that straightforward to well just walk around and shoot things yeah um the original game didn't have mouse input did it no it didn't have mouse look and uh, that was really the like basically the killer of the game apparently like yeah Full disclosure here, I only played the Enhanced Edition and mm. uh, it didn't feel too different from, from a normal, uh, let's say, a shooter maybe. Yeah. Except for that there are so many things that you can do um, to move your body and stuff like that. So Yeah, yeah the leaning and the leaning crouching. In, yeah. 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 This, it's, yeah. this is not an action game really at heart. No. So normal people would use WASD to move around. But being back in the early 90s there, mouse look wasn't around. So you would use S, Z, X, C to move around and A and D mm-hmm. to rotate your view. Or you could click on the edges of the screen to rotate your view, which was the same from yeah. Ultima Underworld. And it makes it a little bit hard to do the action stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess makes sense that they um, added an option to disable all the um, shooting stuff. Like if there's also there's, there's so many things that you can um, customize the difficulty settings for your game with. Like mm. it's crazy. Yeah, that's really cool. This was kind of uh, when I played it for the first time. I, this was kind of a problem because I didn't speak enough English to actually. I didn't have the manual <laughs> to understand what exactly does the different difficulties mean. So I remember for the first time I played it, I set everything basically to zero, and I was like. So what's the game? Like, why are these like people here and I can just like kill them, but they don't do anything? Like this door has why a keypad, but it's it's just open. It's like it's like I... <laughs> what's the game? There's no game. <laughs> yeah, it was still I still spent hours playing it like that. Uh and then I said, like, oh maybe I should like years after that I changed the difficulty and then actually I also tried to really Things play happen. the game. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that be, that's, yeah. that's really that's 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 really modern isn't it um like um they yeah. did that in 94 and in like the last five or six years or something we got games that included the story mode and before that there was there was a vacuum no game did it as far as or very few games did so it was yeah. was quite ahead of its, its time it's crazy it's it's almost the opposite of what all games were doing because most games were just insanely difficult and also really yeah. proud of that i guess they didn't have to cheat with the playtime so there's there's so much content in the game 
that uh, for a normal player, even on the lowest lower difficulty settings, it still took long enough that you got um, your money worth of, of gameplay out of it. Definitely, definitely. It's almost the other way around. If you put it to the max uh, difficulty, then actually the game is time limited, right? You have to beat the whole thing in oh, right. seven hours, I think. Yeah, if you change the mission difficulty to the uh, mm. biggest. And that's also the thing, you can change the difficulty separately so you can just uh, if you don't feel like fighting then you can still keep all the puzzles and everything you, you yeah. think that the cyberspace is stupid then you can also disable that <laughs> <laughs> yeah or or the other way around tone down the puzzles and just make it more of a shooter yeah definitely so this crazy modern so when did you play it joseph I don't really remember like when like most of the games at the time it must have been like around I don't know early early 2000 I think I think mm. I just had it I don't know <laughs> from where <laughs> I had the the uh, floppy version so actually when I played it uh, later now I uh, discovered the voices like all of the right now you will cease immediately no. I know I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Like I, I discovered all of the the voices, and uh, like, now, like when I played it, uh, like for the club, I finally finished it after twenty years, basically. <laughs> Which was, and I, I really like the game. I, I played the sequel. I finished the sequel several times and everything, but just never really got through to the to the uh, to the original. And um, yeah. So, and back then, I remember like the controls were just like that. That was it. Like, didn't give it very much thought. Uh, yeah. Also, if you don't get very far, the combat is not that hard. Uh, but in later parts, it's actually really useful to be able to aim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's it works more like an adventure game almost, like where you could just click on things on the screen and to interact with them. But of course, this doesn't work with the mouse aiming that's more common now in in shooters. So, yeah, it's a, I don't know. I was a bit just surprised by because normally, like in shooters at the time, I remember when playing Wolfenstein and Doom and those kind of games. I just played them with the keyboard and it was fine. There was no mouse involved at all. But with this game, it's like a mix of these two. Like you can walk around with the keyboard, but then just click on items using the mouse without changing your the way you look. It's it's a bit bizarre when you when you first play it now. Although at the time, like you said, I mean the 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 WASD controls that that wasn't standard at all yet. So uh, yeah, I was like the difference between like System Shock and the uh, shooters from the era is that System Shock is an actual, f- really real 3D game. So uh, there is no like aiming in the basically in Doom. The Z axis aiming is just automatic, mm-hmm. and in System Shock you actually have to shoot at the monster. Right. So that's also I think why the controls are the way they are. Mm. And even worse, you have to look up and down as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that kind of ties into having to aim up and down, right? I mean, or is that separate even? I mean, can you look down and shoot up? No, there, there was a separate mouse control. Uh, the, yeah, there was a separate ma- um, ma- keyboard control to actually look up and down because obviously the mouse look wasn't there at the time. 
So, yeah, I'm glad that you guys played it back in the day because uh, to me, this is all new and it's, uh, it's quite a lot to take in, to be honest. Um, yeah, just checking this out during the month. You know, sometimes we have these games that are actually not that involved and, and well, you can sort of get the gist of them by playing just a few hours. But this game, I feel you have to really, yeah, dive into it and, and there's, there's just a lot to unpack. It's really, yeah, there's a lot to it. So, so I, I've tried playing it over the years and I always tend to get to give up sort of after about getting into the third level of the game after the reactor. I just tend to say this is this is just too much for me at the time, too much to concentrate on. But it was good having the DOS Game Club do it for the month because it forced me to finish the game. <laughs> awesome. That's cool. So was this the mm. first time? Yeah, well, it wasn't the first time because you finished it back then as well, didn't you? Yeah, this was the first time I finished it on a proper difficulty setting, or a, yeah, a decent <sighs> difficulty setting. So, uh, right, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit timid at times, and the way the game works, it's not a again, it's not a horror game, but there are a lot of scary bits and jumpy bits, and yeah, it, it does put you on edge. There was one point when I was playing when my phone went off, and, and it made me jump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's always great. Oh. Uh... I remember playing a really scary game once and uh, someone shoved a, a paper under the door. <laughs> I think it was just a pizza flyer or something, like an ad, like someone just shoved in. And it's, I, I was on the, on the ceiling. I was like, what? <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. I think many people have stories like that. Um, yeah. When I first played um, Fear, uh, I was uh, had just moved in the, into my own um, flat that I, that I lived alone in. <laughs> it was really oh, scary. Yeah. And every <laughs> every noise I heard was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun because I, I don't think people would say this is a horror game, but it kind of is. I think it, it uh, is. Like, it's, it's, yeah. it is. Yeah, you also have to see it in um, with the eyes of, of the time that it was made in. I mean, hmm. people got got used to to um, more terrifying horror over the time. So I think in '94 it might have been quite more, or obviously more terrifying or horrifying than it is today. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, now we we've played, we've seen all all the um, horror games, all the horror movies that were made in the meantime. So I, ex- I assume we expect more nowadays. It's raised the bar, yeah. yeah. Although, uh, yeah, by 94, there were some pretty scary things made. But I think the horror atmosphere, maybe we can actually get to the story. And yeah. Because I think the horror part, they come kind of like from there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it starts right away, doesn't it? Welcome to my Did you guys hear that or <laughs> hear what? <laughs> Getting some interference here. Yeah. Um yeah, because the it, it the story um it goes quite quickly, I feel. And there's this intro cinematic where where you see a guy on his uh, laptop or something. What is it? He's hacking into uh, a space station but he's caught I think he's caught in like five minutes or something right yeah he does, doesn't seem to get be a very good hacker actually <laughs> he's not a very good hacker no <laughs> so he, he hacks for five minutes and then he's caught by the police uh, but then well maybe someone someone can explain what happens so he's not caught by police he's caught by the Trioptimum company who he was hacking into he was having right. fun hacking into the Citadel space station 
And the company's security takes him to the station where this shadowy executive, Diego, offers him a military-grade neural implant in exchange for helping him out solving a problem. And so he, you, you, as the titular hacker, you're asked to remove the safeguards which limit the station's AI showdown to make it to make it better and help Diego solve his problem. Um, mm-hmm. So you solve you so you remove the AI safeguards and you get placed into a healing coma for six months to receive your new neural military grade neural implant. Yeah, exactly. And then once you wake up, that's already when the game starts, isn't it? So yeah, it's really you're exploring this game along with the protagonist. He he doesn't have any idea what's going on either. And I think this is all. This is where the scary stuff already starts because it it becomes apparent quite early on that. It, it removing the safeguards to the AI that's running the station was maybe not a good idea <laughs> because everyone seems to be gone, isn't it? Gone or turned into mu- or to mutants, yes. Yeah, so this is not a thriving space station anymore. Uh, yeah, it's really empty at the beginning. Which is kind of scary. It feels even emptier because you come across all those um, notes and, and voice messages from people that lived on the station before. And um, you're, you're learning how they uh, learned about what was going on and that they didn't know what was happening. And so you are not, you don't know. You just notice they're getting more desperate and desperate with every message that you, that you receive. That's, exactly. that's really cool. Exactly. Yeah, and so during the game, you are in contact with the... People actually employees from Teraptimum, but from Earth that managed to contact you and they basically say to you like you're practically the last person alive on the on the station and you have to well, let's say save it, but that's not really what happens later. <laughs> yeah, but your goal it's 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 quite clear that showdown this AI, that's your main nemesis. Because she also talks to you occasionally, right? Yeah, that was, by the way, that was I didn't expect anything like that when I first played it. And um, you, you heard a few messages and, and um, Shodan interrupts one of the um, messages you receive from someone else. But suddenly, a bit later, she addresses you directly. And I was, I was sitting on my, on my, at my desk. I was like, what? Did she just <laughs> say, who are you? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> that's, that's something that, you, I mean, you, you expect something like that from a modern game, but that was 94. Mm. I, was, I wasn't yeah. really expecting that. Yeah, it, it gave me... A bit it's it's a bit the same vibe as in Portal, isn't it? Where where this computer is is addressing you and saying, Well, you can't you can't solve this level and you're just an insect and just give up now and Yeah, but Gladys is, is making making fun of you. So. No, it's not as funny, definitely. It really got me. Everyone was uh, saying how how amazing GLaDOS was and that obviously the GLaDOS is incredibly inspired by Shodan. Yeah, yeah. It's it's Almost the same thing, really. Yeah, it's kind of like the cart- cartoonish version of Shodan, basically. Like, uh... yeah, yeah, just just funnier, I guess, for um, comedy relief and stuff. Like yeah, that, so. because Shodan is not really, really funny at all. I mean, <laughs> it's really quite serious. It's yeah. yeah. But what? Why? Why would she or it? I don't know. Uh, why would yeah. she be uh, funny at all? I mean, totally. Yeah. It's, it's oh, a very, totally. very, very serious story. Oh, no. 
it's the definitely the pure malevolence and evil that Shadan brings in, particularly with the audio logs that she does, is just groundbreaking to me. Like you can really feel her hatred of I- 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 insect. <laughs> yeah, that's cool too. That it glitches out. It makes you really doubt if yeah, it, it's it's even scarier, you know, when you know this this AI is controlling everything and it's not working entirely correctly it's like uh i don't know and even just in the intro in the intro movie um after removing her ethical constraints and it says she re-examines her priorities and draws new conclusions and the voice changes and you can tell that something's going wrong and it's just so cool yeah it also changes from from just a third person to to first like it first it's describing as a voiceover to the story and then it changes to I and and I'm going to do this and I think this and yeah you feel a big change mm-hmm. yeah good stuff so that's the story it's it's really um apart from that opening cutscene I don't think there are any other cutscenes are there so there are kind of like in Master of Orion you have these small video messages that you get uh on of a few points in the story uh so for example, when you fire the laser uh, and destroy the Earth, you can see a small video firing the laser. <laughs> and there are, I think, four or five s- small CG cutscenes in the, in the right. game like that. Yeah, but it's not the main way the, the story is told, I would say. No, no, definitely not. It's more, it's more integrated. It's more as you play, you find these logs, which is also incredibly modern, isn't it? I mean, this is basically how, yeah, yeah, how all modern games tell their stories. It's just, yeah, reading these emails and reading these articles and just putting it all together. Yeah, well, maybe not all of them. Some of them have you interact with NPCs, but yeah, <laughs> sure. And this is I, somewhere I don't remember where, but somewhere I read like this was really a deliberate choice. Like there would be no dialogue in the game, so all of the interaction yeah. is just uh, like basically one uh, one way. Even if you mm. receive a message like email, <laughs> it's like it's really called email uh, with a <laughs> buzzing sound yeah. and everything. And uh, even that yeah. is just people they can contact you, but you can never answer. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i read that too that it's um because these are uh the same people that all previously worked on ultima underworld um that was quickly mentioned in the uh voice message we got too and we'll talk about this definitely later on but uh, ultima underworld does have dialogue trees right it does have you talking to npcs and they fe- i think they felt it took you out of the game a bit too much. You were just wandering through this world and then suddenly everything stops and you have to go through these texts. I think they felt it broke the immersion and and, and pulled you out of the experience. So, yeah, I think you're right. They, they deliberately tried to avoid doing that. Um, so that's why they came up with the log stuff. And it's really quite revolutionary and, and something that's uh, repeated in many other games since. Yeah. But it's it's also it's it's more like more than that actually because um, most of the interaction is through voice messages or those notes. But in, in a couple of places, Shodan addresses you without you doing anything, like reading a note or something. Like when you destroy mm. the first computer core, and she's like, uh, she uh, addresses you directly and tells you, "Hey, this is not going to change anything." And that's that's even more immersive. Uh, I yeah. think. So 
It felt Definitely. really, really cool. That that's really modern. I mean, that's uh, we said it a few times. This game feels way more yeah. modern than '94. Yeah, definitely. I like the moments when you do something, like you in a later game, you like basically blow something up, and then you just receive an email, and you're like, "Oh, who could this be?" And you open the email, and it showed on like getting really pissed. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So, so you wake up at the start of this game in what I guess is a hospital. Uh, because you had this implant, uh, this, this, what is it? Like cybernetic stuff implanted yeah. into you. Um, and from there out, you, you, you kind of explore the station level by level, right? It's organized in, you, yeah, there's literally an elevator going up and down, uh, through the station. So that's the way the game is structured. Um, but I think it's interesting to talk a little bit about all the stuff that you can actually do because it's quite a lot. You're exploring the station not only in the physical world, right? You also <laughs> have to go into cyberspace, which is um, maybe one of the big grievances <laughs> with the game because this is really confusing. Oh, dear. Like, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> well, what are you talking about? Maybe, maybe just take this one step at a time. You, first you're in the station, but then you're not. So what happens? Yeah, I guess you're still in the station, but um, all scattered throughout the station, there are those, uh, what are they called? I don't know, um, like, like terminals that you can access mm -hmm. to enter cyberspace. And since I assume that's because of the implant that you got, you perceive it as a 3D world and you, you're traversing this world and trying to make sense of it. Um, collecting new software pieces or I guess they are called softs in the game and avoiding um, like, I don't know what, what they are, like like uh, firewalls yeah. or something. Antiviruses. Yeah. It's, ah, right. Yeah. It's all just big squares. The ICE, it's like, uh, in what is it? The ICE, uh, it's like uh, interference and countermeasure or something like that. Okay. So so anyway, um, while you're in the real world, the entire um, everything is textured, and it's uh, I mean the, the game itself, the the entire map is, is is confusing at times. But when you enter cyberspace, suddenly all the walls become <laughs> become translucent, so you can you only see the outlines of walls, and you it's it's I don't know I, I got lost constantly, and um, parts of the outside walls start flashing randomly and um, sometimes there are hints like there's an arrow pointing you at where you have to go that's it's it's a really confusing um part of the game and honestly I, I didn't play it for for too long just a couple of hours in total and i didn't really find out what it was good for so can you please enlighten me so you end up uh you, you can unlock doors and pick up new upgrades to your software in cyberspace, basically. Oh, yeah. right. And, and I, I remember unlocking a door, so I actually lied. Yeah. And the, so. en and the end of the game, you have to complete in cyberspace. So for those who are a little bit confused by that, you're actually in a six degrees of freedom style area. So you're no longer trapped in your physical body. You are fully in cyberspace. Um, and because this is a cyberpunk-themed game, people who are familiar with stuff like the Neuromancer, the book, um, and probably more likely than not, Lawnmower Man. If you think of uh, how Lawnmower Man treated cyberspace or the digital world, that's very much inspired or in the, sa in the same vein as System Shock cyberspace. So you move around this uh, 3D environment, drive yourself forward, and then you fire your lasers at, at, um, at the antiviruses and at the ice-protected nodes. 
And if you die in cyberspace, it actually takes it cuts you only have a short amount of time in cyberspace before Shadan kicks you out, and you have to try and complete everything before that. And if you die in cyberspace, you actually get less time to go in again. It's really trippy. It's <laughs> that's all I got from it. It resembles like uh, uh, a few months back we played Descent, so it's like playing just the Descent, yeah. but just the map mode, and you are in the map yeah. where <laughs> everything is transparent, yeah. and you can you always move forward. So yeah. <laughs> on on top of that, everything uh, uh, randomly flashes. So. I, I I got a quite a few headaches actually. I I, uh, I was playing the game late <laughs> at night, and I just at some point I, just, I can't, I couldn't. Like I was really angry because some of the combats are really hard in cyberspace. Actually, I just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, you can't stop, right? Um, although someone said um, on the lower difficulty setting, you can actually stop in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. But um, on the default settings that that I played it at, you cannot stop, and it makes it really, really hard. But I guess they they just made this for style and uh, maybe to um, play more with this cyberpunk theme. But that's yeah. that part doesn't really play or doesn't really work very well for gameplay. It's really memorable, though. I yeah, mean, that's true. It makes it even more special than the game already is. It's already kind of amazing, but then on top they throw this trippy wireframe color blocks floating, and you're floating yourself too. It's it's kind of crazy. It's it's I don't know I, I kind of like it. I think it's cool. And, and the the music in cyberspace is kind of trippy as well, especially when you enter these tunnels, which accelerate you and move you from place to place. It's some like something out of Sonic, like when you have right the. I know some immortality in uh, in in some of the platformer games. It's really weird. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. I think it's cool. It's cool for style. It's maybe not great for actual shooting action, but <laughs> well, it's still I don't know. It'd be more like interactive it. than typing into a console and trying to hack the mainframe like in that way. Yeah, definitely. Although there is there is sort of that as well, isn't there? I mean, there's not literally. Uh, typing stuff into hack systems. But there are tons of these little, yeah, what do you call them? Like puzzles, I guess? Where you have to connect wires or you have to draw uh, lines through things to connect things. It's all, that's that's kind of unique as well. Yeah, so there are wire puzzles where you basically just have to brute force um, a series of connections and put enough power through to unlock the door or the the light or whatever it may be. And then there are node puzzles where you have to get a path from one end to the other according to the pattern that's on the screen and with the rules that happen, what happened when you click. And you can actually make those easier by bypassing them with a particular in-game item if you're finding them hard. And some of them are just a pain in the in the rear end after a while. <laughs> yeah. Those those yeah. wire wire puzzles you said you have to brute force them, but I think there's there's some some tricks that you can do to solve them quicker. Like you don't have to try all the solutions or all possible possible solutions. Um like when you move a wire on one side to the right spot and the power level already increases and you know ah this is probably the right thing to do and you move the other side and it either goes up or stays the same or goes down and you know uh maybe I shouldn't move it or maybe I should move it again and so it's not really brute forcing. You can, add, uh, you can apply logic, at least in a limited way. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I don't know. What I did was just move the wires a whole lot until it worked. <laughs> <laughs> 
You can also use there is a logic probe item uh, which you can use and then just like auto solves the puzzle. Mm. And uh, there is actually one puzzle in the game where this is uh, like you really ought to use the logic probe. Okay. But this is also customizable, right? I mean, at the start with the difficulty. Yes. Yeah, the lowest difficulty, if you just double click on the puzzle, it will auto solve. Yeah. So. Yeah, those those, those mini games that you that you have in the game, hmm? it's it's one more of those things that um, somehow still penetrate the entire gaming scene, right? So you you get uh, lock picking or stuff like that in, in every modern game or every RPG at least. Yeah, be it be it uh, cyber lock picking or actual literal lock picking in in fantasy themed games. It's yeah, it's always there. Yeah, it's totally like that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And another thing that you're constantly looking out for is uh, taking out the cameras. I think this is also a really modern aspect of this game that that there are well, the fact that they're destructible at all is kind of modern because uh-huh. I don't think Wolfenstein or Doom had <laughs> destructible terrain, did they? Well, terrain, this is maybe not terrain, <laughs> but still. Well, barrels perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But I don't know. It just literally taking out uh, a camera and then having it explode and then also actually having this to mean something in the game like the 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 yeah that's that's another thing so as I, as i mentioned i didn't play it for too long but when i did all those things like destroying um, cameras and those computer hubs uh, it said the security level was going down but i never yeah. really understood what that did it means you can open doors right Yes. Doors that would otherwise be locked. Oh, I see. Yes, some of the doors, they when you try to open and you see some uh, small animation with Shodan basically like uh, locked with Shodan level security. And oh, I understand. Yeah, that ma- makes sense now. The, the theory being is that um, this is the 90s and we haven't invented Wi-Fi yet, so Shodan can only monitor you through the security cameras. Like She can't inhabit any of her cyborg minions or anything like that, so she's sort of stuck in cyberspace. And in the real world, yeah, by taking out the cameras, you're reducing her control over you and the station. Right. Which is really cool. Really, I, I, yeah. This is one of the things that I just find, yeah, really spectacular. I don't know yeah. why, but it's it's also kind of difficult. I think, like when you when you miss a camera when you run through the corridors, and later on you try to find it on the map again. That's really like, uh, okay, I see I'm standing right next to it, but it's not here. Maybe it's on a different level, but how do I get to a different level? It's because the map is only 2D, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit hard to find your way around the station. <laughs> At least the map shows you the little red dots if you go past the camera and spot yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. But then finding it again, that was kind of difficult. And there are actually not that many levels where you need to find all of them. Like destroy my cameras. <laughs> Thank you, Shodan. <laughs> yeah. Uh now there's also other stuff to do, right? Like like you can you can lean and crouch, stuff like that. Which is also kind of unique for a well, I guess it's not unique for an RPG, maybe. Uh but it's yeah. for this first person shooting stuff, it's sort of special. Um, modern shooters do similar stuff, but automatically, like you don't have to lean by pressing a key, but you run uh, towards cover, a corner with cover, and um, then you press like like the um, aim button and 
your your character will lean out from from cover and so that's that's still there but a bit more a bit easier to control yeah for a shooter you can also go prone so you can really go low if you need to and at one point in the game is actually also required but uh, you have quite a lot of control over the whole movement yeah yeah that's cool What's what's more? What's another thing to talk about? We didn't really talk about the cyborg minions at all, haven't we? Have we? Or the entire UI? Yeah, there's, that's another thing. There's a massive HUD. Like I think this, the the actual play area is maybe two thirds of the screen, something like that. Um, maybe less if you count all maybe the border less. area. It's maybe like half the pixels is is your view of the station. So you can you can disable the hut, I think, at least in the enhanced edition. I don't know about the original one. In original, you could do it too. Like there is this full screen view, and you can disable pieces of it and everything. So yeah, you can. Um... There, there are so many things that you can control. Like you, you have. Uh, it's really like like a flight simulator, actually. So you have multifunction displays that you can put different things on, like the map or your current weapon loadout. Uh, a rear view of, of that's that's updating constantly. Like there's so many things that you can put there. It's it's amazing. Half of those things I didn't understand, and I never understood the navigation of of those systems. Like how do I get from one to the other without trying every button on the screen? Uh, so there is a luckily like almost all of the keyboard is used in this game, so you can switch between the panels <laughs> using keys from. Like all of the F keys are used and also all of the number keys are used just to switch different parts of the HUD. <laughs> Did I mention flight simulators? <laughs> <laughs> because uh, during the game, basically, our character will uh, pick up uh, uh, sort of tools that you can activate. Uh, some are quite normal, like flashlights or uh, um, or the rear view mirror, for example. Uh but some of them are actually changing stuff a bit more. Like you, you have a hover, uh, um, basically rocket jumping uh, boots and uh, uh, sort of like a hover, how do you call it? Um, what do you call the hover thing, David? Yeah, it's it's, a ro- it's rocket boots. Yeah, it's... Uh, you have rocket boots, but you also have like a gliding... Uh, uh, they, they do both. They do hovering and, and fast movement. And then you get uh, like enhanced uh, view and uh, compass stuff like that, and so you can activate all of them. You also have your mail, uh, uh, like recording, like MFD, it's called, in which you can view the logs, read the messages. You have the mini map, and then you can inspect all of the items in your inventory. So these are the uh, two views that you have on the sides, and you can choose between like two functions, but they can be on either side. And in the middle, you can see all of your items. And for items, you have the weapons, you have your uh, steam patches, which are like small booths, and you have your consumable items, and grenades, basically. These are uh, things you can have. And your software. That's for the cyberspace. So definitely, there is a lot of hard working to do. It's kind of like a, a car, basically. Just... Uh, of controls. There's also the um, the biometer biometer in the top left corner that I never understood what it actually does. So there are like like waves displayed there, like like an ECG or something, but I never understood what it does mm. or what it represents or what it changes. I tried uh, looking up on the web like if it actually changes in anything, and I I haven't found anything. The only thing that it might change is the sort of ECG because there is a fatigue level. 
So it's kind of like stamina, but it actually goes up. And if your fatigue is at 100%, you cannot run. You can see your heart rate go up when you do that. I and mean, if you take certain patches, like the Berserk patch or the Vision patch, you can see the effects of that on the biomonitor, basically. Okay. I, I didn't notice that in the game, but I really have to say this is super cool. <laughs> it is really cool. It's amazing. It's like you're inside a vehicle or something, even though you're not. Well, I guess this is because of the implants, right? This is your military guide cyber interface. Yeah. Exactly. So you're like a mech warrior almost. Yeah. With the lead pipe. <laughs> I didn't play them myself, but I read that you can actually even have games on on the HUD. What's up with that? So, yeah, so uh, you can play like Space Invaders and, and a few other little games there that you find in cyberspace. I played Pong on it. I remember it now. Yeah. But I think it's called Ping, but anyway. <laughs> For copyright reasons. And if you um, if you take a certain patch, the reflex patch, you actually increase your luck playing the game. Hmm. Nice. But they're all this little time wasters. Yeah. Yeah. This is crazy that you're playing a game and then inside the game you can play another game. That's next. Yeah, I don't know. So, uh, but that's, that, that's not so new. I mean... You could play uh, Maniac Mansion in Day of the Tentacle. And I think it has been done a couple, couple of times by then. Well, okay. Still felt kind of amazing to me. So yeah, there's a lot going on with the HUD. And then, and then you also encounter these cyborgs, right? They're, they're just like zombies or something. They're just wandering through the station that's otherwise sort of empty. What's up with that? So Shodan has uh, managed to convert the healing chambers on the station into cyborg conversion chambers. So people who are otherwise uh, downed have been dragged by robots into these chambers and then converted into her minions. So right. um, apart from meeting the, the mutated humans in the earlier part of the levels, you will encounter basically varying forms of cyborg who are out there to protect Shodan at all costs. This is really evil, isn't it? Converting the the healing chambers. It's interesting gameplay wise, though. Like um, you begin the the game, and um, when you die, you're dead because then you're transformed and in, uh, transferred into a or converted into a cyborg, and then you have to load the game. But later on, you can repair um, the um, the chambers, and then you you just respawn there. So the game gets gets easier while while you're playing it. Yeah, and this was something that was then taken by uh, like uh, the System Shock Two, Bioshocks, like all of the games in the genre. They have this sort of like, respawn basically mechanics. Oh yeah, had Bioshock also had the same thing? Yeah, it had the uh, Vita chambers. Oh, I don't remember that. I do. I did play some Bioshock when it came out, but I it must have been too long ago. It is sort of similar, isn't it? People say that Bioshock is in a way. Uh, a spiritual successor to to this. I, uh, I mean, compared to something like System Shock, to it's you could say like it's retextured. Well, that would be mean, but uh, <laughs> it's basically it. Yeah, the hint is in the name. I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think some of the same people were also involved. Actually, yeah, we talk about that later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're on the Citadel station, and 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 you're slowly figuring out that. Uh, the AI is 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 evil. Well, actually, this is apparent quite quite early on. <laughs> uh, and then, what you basically do is you just try to 
unlock all the areas, right? I mean, that's like the whole way that you're progressing is you're you're finding access to the elevators, other floors, unlocking more doors, just to get to the encounter with Shodan in the end, I guess. Yeah, so um, you're basically presented with the the most pressing problem at the time. So so Rebecca Lansing, uh, counterterrorism operative from Earth, will contact you and basically try and get you to stop whatever Shodan's current plan is, whether that's using the mining laser to destroy cities on Earth, whether that's uh, launching the mutagen virus at Earth to try and turn Earth into a whole bunch of mutated humans, or whether that is uh, destroying the antennae on the station to stop Shodan from broadcasting herself into Earth's networks and taking over there. So the, the mining laser is the mining laser is particularly cool because you can actually fire it at Earth yourself, and Shodan will congratulate you for helping her plan. And you get a nice little video of yeah being being brought out to be turned into Shodan's Cortex Reaver, <laughs> which is the big baddie of the game. Amazing. <laughs> Which is kind of interesting because, like, what the laser control is in a room full of cyborgs, and then, like, if you pull it before doing, like, some, uh, basically turning on the shield so you can actually destroy the laser instead of uh, firing it, uh, like, Shodan uh, says, like, oh, thank you, but any of the cyborgs could have pulled the lever. And, like, just... Why didn't what, they? What was she waiting for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't control them directly, does she? No, not directly. And actually, uh, during the game, you can pick up some messages like a specific, like it's a, like, oh, Cyborg 220X, uh, go there and guard this door and stuff like that. So yeah. you can, she also just sends them the email. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. And like any good employee, they're obviously ignoring their emails as well because they don't defend very well. <laughs> Yeah, but they I, I feel they're they they respond more like zombies. They're just they're not really there or something. They're not really thinking. They're just occupying the space and well maybe this changes with the difficulty as well. But that's much better for you though, because you're in theory you're murdering former Citadel station employees. Mm-hmm. So just don't think of them as humans, you're fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a terrorist one oh one, right? Don't don't think of them as humans. Shall we talk a bit about the weapons? There's a lot of weapons in this game. I think there's 16 weapons in total, something like that. Destroy it, my children. <laughs> um, yeah, there's 16 weapons, uh, but they're they're really different kinds of weapons, aren't there? They're they're like classic pistols st- stuff that also requires ammunition, but there's also more laser gun type things that drain energy. The, one of the first items you grab is is just a, a pipe, right? Which also kind of works as a weapon. The lead pipe, the classic lead pipe. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, so the big part of the game is your energy reserves. So we mentioned um, some of the interface modules before, like the shield and the jump jet boots. They all share um, an energy pool. And so you can pick up energy weapons in that game that will also use that energy pool. So you get to choose whether you want to use an energy weapon which may be more effective, say, against robots or using your shield or your light or your rearview mirror. Um, and energy management is a big part of the game as well as managing your weapons as well because you can't fit all of the weapons in your inventory at once. Right. This feels very RPG-like to me. And as well as that, normally most of the ballistic weapons have multiple ammo types. 
So you might have one particular ammo type that's good against biological enemies, one particular type that's good against robots, one that's good against armor, that kind of thing. So it gives you a little bit of choice and flexibility in terms of how you want to tackle a problem. Yeah, cool. The Also, one cool thing about the, the weapons is that they have all names. Actually, for example, uh, one, I would say the best weapon in the game, it's called like RF-07 Scorpion. And they all have these names with uh, two letters at the beginning. And these are all uh, uh, initials of the development team. So the Scorpion is named after Rob Fermier. And the AM-20 Cent Flechette is named after... Alvaro Moreno, so who worked apparently on quality assurance. So that's kind of uh, kind of cool uh, <laughs> thing about the weapons as well. That's fun. The thing with um, different ammo types for weapons, um, uh, you you mentioned Mass Effect earlier, which I think or which seems to be heavily inspired by System Shock in in a way. Um, and this is something that you have in in this game and in many games um, of the same genre, right? So it's really another thing. And, and I think um, I haven't come across a game early, later or, or younger, what, older than System Shock that has something like that. No, I, maybe, maybe it's more of an RPG thing. Um, most RPGs have a fantasy setting, I suppose. So then there isn't that many shooting, typically. Uh, but it, oh, but you can still have different uh, uh, arrow types. Yeah, like it, it feels more like that. Like, yeah, some of these old games are are surprisingly intricate uh, with their options. So it it feels like more something in that vein to me. It's not really something from the shooter tradition. Although I guess some top down shooters also have lots of weapon customization options. So maybe. Uh, but yeah, it's surprising that it goes this deep. And also the int- uh, one interesting thing is that you have l- limited uh, amount of spots for weapons. I think you can have uh, 10 or 8 or 10. Which is still a lot, right? And there are, like, since there are more weapons than that and all of them use different ammo, you have to actually choose like which weapons do you want to keep, which weapons do you want to uh, uh, go through. Because... Some of them are powerful, but then there is no ammunition, especially at the beginning. And uh, until you get to the latest level, uh, most of them are actually unique. So you only pick them up once. You can't drop them again and pick them up later. Yeah, you can. Like you, the, Basically, since you can also leave marks on your map, uh, when I was playing, I basically just throw it somewhere near the elevator and like, yeah. left a mark like, oh, here's my uh, rail gun if I exactly. ever need it. Yeah. Uh, and and on top of all these weapons, there's also grenades and stuff, right? Oh, grenades! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said I said earlier that cyberspace is maybe the worst part of the game, but I think grenades are actually. Did you kill yourself a lot? Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe no no more than twenty or thirty times <laughs> when first trying out grenades. Like, That's quite low, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who who invented that? I mean, I, I can see why they did it. So you have um, to explain. You have to um, select the grenade, and you have to um, you have to trigger it, and then you have to throw it using the normal throwing keys that you also use to throw um, items back into the room. And I I never got it working right. So you 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 try it, and suddenly you you put the grenade right on on top of your feet, and it it, it explodes there. It's 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 a real mess. It's it's really hard to use, and 
I'm very glad that that mechanic is not something that has caught on. You can now see why, like modern games, they show you like the trajectory of the grenade and how will it bounce because yeah. there is like oh, and it's a single single button usually, like like just press G to throw a grenade. It's like hmm. so you have to actually lob the grenade yourself with the mouse in the interface. So you, the speed that you move the mouse at and the angle which you let go will actually determine the grenade's path. So it does take a little bit of a while to get a hang of, and most of the time, like you won't really bother with grenades. But there are occasions where you can. You can actually like drop, drop grenades or throw grenades in specific places and lure enemies out. Or uh, and if you shoot grenades when they're on the ground, they will explode as well. It seems really advanced, though. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of physics going on to to calculate the the arc of the of the grenades as they go. It's kind of kind of unique for this sort of action game. Well, it's yeah. Keep saying this. It's not really an action game, but still. But maybe it's unique because, like, like it's understandable why it didn't really catch on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's almost like a golf game, like where you have to move your mouse to to swing. You know? Yeah. Oh well. Insect, cease your meddling. My experiment must continue. <laughs> And, and, of course, one of the great weapons is the laser rapier, mm. which you get sort of... In, if you find it early enough in the game, it's great fun to use because it is essentially a lightsaber. That's what I was going to say. Is it, it basically makes you a Jedi. Except it takes power, but it almost one-shots almost anything. So even in light game, it's great. Especially when you get the... I don't, so I don't know which one of the upgrades is it, but there is one of the upgrades that on some levels will actually show you the position of nearby cyborgs. And then you just like wait behind a corner and when they come up, you slash them and it's like perfect. What a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is that the weapons or? There are a lot of weapons. There are also some useless ones because you also have a stun gun, Hmm. which is useless. And there is also a riot gun, which fires rubber bullets, which do almost no damage. But they can push stuff over, so that's one way of getting rid of grenades because you can just push them on the floor. But yeah, can just fire and explode them. And you do have a weapon in cyberspace, but it's just a generic polygon that you fire at things. It's not actually notable at all. Oh right, in in cyberspace, you obviously you can't access all your physical stuff, so it's it's a a whole different a whole different thing. That you have like a virtual you're firing a virtual piece of software called a pulse and there is also a, a piece of software called an icebreaker which you can use to unlock ice protected nodes but that's basically it mm. right and does that also drain your energy in cyberspace or is that not that's no no there that... is just i think a limit of how many can be in flight at the same time so if you fire it something far away you will have to kind of time it mm. And uh, so the difference is in cyberspace, if you fire projectiles at some enemy that also fires at you, the projectiles will actually clash and uh, like will change directions. Mm. So it's also kind of a protection. Right. But uh, one thing I found is that usually the ice enemies, they fire faster than you. So basically you just have to get close, get lucky, <laughs> Yeah, get close and get lucky. Yeah, yeah. 
It requires some strategy in the use of the decoy software. Yes. But that one is limited, right? You'd only have, uh, like, it's a pickup, and there are not that many of them, I think, in the game. That's right. It is a little bit. Little, you often, towards the end of the game, you just leave ice nodes alone because they're just too much of a hassle to deal with. I remember uh, once it was, I think, in the level six, there is an ice node, and I spent maybe 20 or 30 minutes breaking it. Because one thing that is uh, fortunate is that uh, if you get kicked out of cyberspace because you die, you just your health will decrease, but it, you can actually never die like that. Mm-hmm. So you can just retry it over and over, and the health of the enemies is not reset. Ah. So you just go in, fly for like a minute, then fire shots until you die, and then do it again and again. You can grind them down. And after all of this, yeah. I, I broke the node, and it was actually a piece of decoy software. So like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping for something useful. <laughs> Uh, but that's cool, though. There's a there's a section in the uh, notes document about the level design. Yeah, that was me. So maybe you can talk a little bit about. I mean, I can I could go through it, but what's the point? I mean, it's your. Yeah, you put it there. So so maybe you can you can talk a little bit about what you, what you wrote down there. Yeah. So uh, one thing I really like about the game is basically that it's sort of open world. So when you wake up in the station, one of the first emails you receive is a mail from Shodan, actually, that explains what's on, the, like how is a uh, station structured, and it turns out it has ten levels, and uh, that you can uh, there are that are linked uh, together with elevators, and basically during the game you have uh, the main tasks uh, that you have to perform. Uh, but you don't actually have to perform them in strict order. Um, uh, uh, usually, the, the, like w- since you are going through the levels uh, and you can do the task, you, you can do it. But uh, basically, at some point, you open an elevator and then you can go, uh, say, from level one, you can go to reactor level or level three. From level three, you can find an elevator to level six and so on. And during the whole game, you actually have to go back and forth in the station and uh, uh, for example at some point you have to overload the reactor which is on the reactor level but in order to be able to do it you have to pick up uh, uh, some uh, a piece of uh, uh, hardware to repair something on level 3 and so on so you have to really go there and back and one cool thing which I find in the game is that as you are progressing in the levels uh, there are parts uh that are locked, like some door which is uh, blocked from one side. But if you do the tour of the level, then you can unlock it. So it creates sort of a shortcut. And then in later parts of the game, you can just quickly go through the level. And you actually kind of learn the uh, way all of the levels are structured right. over over time. Yeah, because it's a bit daunting. That's what I felt anyway. At, at first, it feels like a big maze. And... It's kind of complex, but actually what you're saying is that it, it gets easier as you're playing. Yes. So And, uh, and uh, honestly, at the end you are, because since, for example, uh, your uh, inventory is quite limited, so you uh, kind of uh, accumulate some spots where you just dump your, uh, say, batteries or medkits and stuff like that, then you go back and pick them up so you kind of learn uh, how to do it. And also, there are a few points in the um, uh, 
in the in the game when you can actually restore your health, it's like healing machines, and they are not on every level. So sometimes, actually, before a big combat, you just have to go back uh, to the right. machine, heal yourself, and then like to, like not uh, waste the med kit, for example. Yeah. And the combat and the backtracking is harder because, of course, uh, enemies respawn throughout the station. Yeah, that is a bit of a problem, isn't it? It's a. I think there's an in-game reason, also, isn't there? Something that rebuilds the cyborgs, or something, or something that. So, say on the reactor level, um, there is a button that you can press that stops the laser turrets being rebuilt. Because mm. obviously, Shodan is, is the, the station is active. The station is alive. Right. Things are moving around. You're only one person in it, so it makes sense that things, other things, are happening. And Shodan is rebuilding cyborgs and getting ready to send things after you. Right. Yeah. It is a bit of a shame, though. I feel when when well, it feels like a bit pointless to kill them because you know you'll you, you know they'll be back again. So. Yeah, but uh, you don't actually have that much health. So if you don't kill them, you can uh, get quite roughed up on the way. Yeah, yeah, you can't really sneak past them. They don't respawn on all of the levels. So, for example, on level one, there are only some mutants that respawn. In the reactor, in and level three, there are a lot of enemies that respawn, but on level two, they don't. So ah. it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Also, one thing in the game is that Actually, to finish the game, unless you are using uh, glitches, uh, you cannot uh, just use a wolf through and, and go, uh, blast through it. Because on every level, you need to destroy a, a set of computers. And when you do, there is a screen that will display a number. And so on six levels, you have to collect these six numbers. And this is actually code that will enable you to overload the reactor. And this code changes on every gameplay. Ah. So... If you don't know, uh, do any notes, which I didn't at the beginning, uh, you then have to go through all of the levels, find a room again, and then <laughs> go through the numbers, which is kind of like a, uh, let's say, a, a memory lane when you are <laughs> you have to replay all of the levels once yeah. more before yeah. the end. <laughs> Amusingly enough, the um, there was a bug in early versions of the game in the DOS game that was also reintroduced in the extended edition that was also patched over, where the RNG to generate those numbers was broken, hmm. and so the code was always the same. Oh. Huh. But uh, that's now fixed. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> was that broken on the on the original floppy disk version or on the the CD-ROM release, or both? Uh, on, on the do- on the disk version, I, b- I believe it was fixed in the CD-ROM oh, version. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. That's funny that it's reintroduced later again. Because the enhanced edition, if I remember correctly, they made it out of the Mac version. Because uh, what? At some point they, uh, yeah, because they got hold of the Mac source code for I don't know what was exactly the politics behind it, and so then they like went from that. So maybe that's where the bug got reintroduced. Ah. that's bizarre, but okay. Well, it was a different company that was that did the extended edition based off a few community mods to make it better. So it's um, it's a conglomeration of things. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Shall we talk a little bit about like how it came to be, the the, the background, the development stuff. Nice jump, human. <laughs> thank you, Shodan. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, of course, uh, Looking Glass Technologies made System Shock. Yeah. And uh, 
People may have heard of them as the team behind Thief as well as System Shock and, of course, set it up. It was originally founded as Blue Sky Productions. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, they were founded as Blue Sky Productions in uh, 1990 by Paul Neurath and Ned Lerner. And it's funny because we actually talked a little bit about this in the last episode uh, on Descent. Because um, the people who made Descent both worked at Blue Sky Productions. They worked on some kind of racing game, I think. And they were both also working on on uh, flight simulator software in the 80s already. So that's, yeah, there's this whole history of, of 3D flight sim games, other games that, are, yeah, the Descent people and the System Shock people, they, they crossed paths at Looking Glass. I think uh, at least one of the Looking Glass people had a history with flight sim stuff. Uh, that's Ned Lerner, because he made a game called Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer in the 80s. And I also read that Paul Neurath, uh, the other founder, he worked on a game called Space Rogue, which, well, I haven't played it myself, but apparently it's a precursor to this, or it's from 1989, and it's a space combat simulator and a role-playing game combined. It's like a spiritual predecessor to, to Wing Commander which is also uh, uh, an Origin game. Origin is the publisher of, uh, of System Shock. Famous, of course, for such games as uh, Wing Commander and Ultima and many, many more. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, those, those people were also sort of involved with, uh, with System Shock and with Looking Glass. One key person in this whole thing is Doug Church, who is a programmer. And he's actually one of the first employees of uh, of Looking Glass when when the company was founded back in 1990. And Doug, he helped them to create a 3D tech demo. And they demonstrated this 3D tech demo at the 1990 Consumer Electronics Show, the, the CES. And Richard Garriott and Warren Spector, both uh, from Origin Systems, they were at the show and they just stumbled upon this demo and they were quite impressed so yeah that's how that's how this game got published through origin because well richard garriott is the founder of origin and warren specter worked at origin at the time and they both decided to uh, well not only publish the game but also give them an, an ultima license and this is what eventually became ultima underworld so so this is how this relation started. And yeah, Richard Garriott is, of course, the creator of Ultima. We've talked about him a little bit on the Ultima, ep- well, a, a, more than a little bit on the, on the <laughs> Ultima episode. And Warren Spector, um, I think Deus Ex is probably the game that he's most famous for, right? But he also worked on Thief, I read. I guess at least Deus Ex is the game that most people know. I mean... Hmm. Most people have heard of Thief, but I think almost everybody has heard of Deus Ex. Yeah, and I also think that's more his, um, what's this word? Like his his masterpiece or something, you know? Like his, this is what he really... Marcus Opus. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. This is like his uh, epic uh, game that he put all his energy into. Although I guess he also put a lot of energy into Ultima Underworld and into System Shock, obviously. But when you look at Deus Ex, it's very much like uh, in the line 
of System Shock. Mm, totally. Well, I've not played Deus Ex a whole lot myself, so I can't really... Well, n- neither have I played System Shock that much, though. But what from what I've heard, yeah, definitely. Both cyberpunk, both RPG elements combined with the shooting, uh, both about these implants. It's remarkably similar. Especially to System Shock 2, because in System Shock 2, you also had these uh, um, RPG elements, like you had stats, and this translated to Deus Ex later. Mm, right. I have not played System Shock 2. Is it? I, I can't imagine it's still on the space station, is it? Or It's on a spaceship. Okay. And uh, it's amazing. Like, okay. So briefly, to kind of spoil a little bit of the story, um, during System Shock 1, you fire off one of the groves that was harboring the virus that was mutating the humanoids. So in the near future, um, a ship discovers a planet where the where that where that uh, bay landed with the virus on it and the virus has evolved into the many and to taken over the ship and also contains a little bit of showdown on it as well and you're and you basically wait go there and um deal with showdown and the many cool that's very really cool and uh the cool thing also is that showdown is not the well she pretends not to be the evil one so you actually work with her Oh wow, that's amazing! Okay, I, I I can't imagine she she really lost her evil tendencies completely, but okay, that's cool. But Deus Ex is more uh more grounded into reality, I would think. It's more it's like on Earth with people. It's like more it's more here, you know. It's not out in space into the far future. So, well, if you ignore all the bizarre conspiracy theories in it, sure. But um, are they really bizarre, David, or is that just how it is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, as as a member of Majestic Twelve and the Illuminati, I cannot comment any further. Open your eyes, David. <laughs> well, Wake let's not comment people. too much about the let's not comment too much about the Black Death going around, uh, um, particularly at the yeah. moment, and the destruction of the World Trade Center. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> in the twin towers yeah. yeah oh well i mean yeah this is not this isn't let's not dive into dsx too much but yeah there there's definitely a lot of overlap between these games uh both game design and and also just the way it feels maybe the way it works so uh i'm not so sure if the story is that much alike but it's they're both very story driven hmm. and um that is a big part in all of these games. And people who've played Ultima Underworld 1 and 2 can really see its influences on System Shock. Mm-hmm. Ultima Underworld 1 and 2, they're more more of an older art style RPG where you really need to make pen and paper notes and you even go through and start translating uh, languages of dwarves and of lizard men and that sort of thing in the, in the game. And it's really... Um, it's really in depth, and you can sort of see the three D engine that you mentioned there as as the basis of what System Shock would become. Yeah, because again, that is fully three D, uh, a fully three D engine with sprite based enemies. That System Shock does almost the same thing. Yeah, definitely. And only only one year after Doom or something, and this is way more advanced. This has sloped, uh, sloped floors and and you know lights and and stuff. It's all. Yeah, it's really advanced for 94. But yeah, so they, they were working in Ultima Underworld 1 and 2, and uh, 
the question is what would come next after that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Because what I read is that uh, after making Underworld 2 especially, they felt a bit burnt out, I guess is the word, on, on all these fantasy dungeon games. I literally read the quote, we've made too many dungeon games. So I guess they were just kind of done with that. So they sat down, especially Doug and, and, and Warren, Doug Church and, and uh, Warren Spector. They were mainly discussing what their next game would be together with uh, game designer Austin Grossman and Paul Nureth, who are all involved with this. So yeah, fantasy was out. And they considered for a while to set the game like in modern times, just like in the present. But they figured that would actually be too difficult because then they would have to implement like everything we have, they felt. So they would have to, you know, if there's a phone, why can't you pick up the phone and call someone? And if there's a train, why can't you jump on the train and go somewhere? And yeah, it's just so they needed something more locked off and more its own space. So I think that's. That's how they got to the, the the science and the space station setting, just to have this more, yeah, scope down thing to work with. And actually, initially, it was going to be a Wing Commander spinoff. It was going to be titled Alien Commander. And uh, yeah, for a while they, they thought, because they had worked with the Ultima license, so they could also use the Wing Commander license with their contacts at Origin and Maybe use that, but yeah, that didn't happen in the end. I think they, I think it was their own decision to drop that and to create something new instead, which, which was, yeah, which was more freeing. I, I suppose, I imagine, just not being tied to this existing universe, but making up your own thing. Not having the corporate execs lock you in to say, no, this is Wing Commander, this is not Wing Commander. Exactly, exactly. So they didn't have that nuisance, and they could just, yeah, basically do what they wanted. They started by by writing these minutes of gameplay documents, which are, yeah, they're, they're documents describing really small segments. So it's just you hide behind a crate and you take out the camera and you open the door. That's it. It's just like those small key moments in the game. And they wrote a whole bunch of them. And uh, yeah, what I read is that this this was mainly led by Doug Church. Uh, so, so in a way, he is the main game designer i guess but then also austin grossman was heavily involved into integrating it all and and making it a coherent design and and work all together so talk about agile software development oh yeah very much (laughs) (laughs) and this is also the moment where they decided uh we should minimize the use of the dialogue trees and and yeah this is where they decided instead of having NPCs wander around and getting into conversations with them, we're not going to do that. It just pulls you out of the game. We're Instead, we're going for in-game, you know, logs, emails, just finding little bits here and there and telling the story that way. So so actually, yeah, this was all, all they, they came up with all this stuff like before they actually started production. So this was all very much the intended. Uh, route. Yeah. They they started actually coding the game in February 1993 and given that the game was released in September 94, that's kind of an amazing development cycle, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's just 18 months from start to finish. And even though they had the Ultima Underworld engine to to start with, I think they made their own engine from scratch for this one. 
because they they wanted more freedom. And I think the Ultima Underworld engine ultimately is a bit limited in, you know, you can't really freely look around and wander and do everything. So they actually started over. So to have this whole, I don't know, to have this whole game in, in only 18 months, when you even have to start with coding an engine, that seems kind of amazing to me. And even if you think just how complicated the game is plot and structure-wise, I mean, to have that all, have it all as cohesive as it is, I mean, there's no real point in the game where you're sort of stuck in in a particular bit of plot which seems dull or tacked on. It all flows very well. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's just an amazing fact. And I, I think it was more normal back in those days to make a game like one game a year or that kind of cycle, but still. This this game is not your typical yeah your typical churned out shooter. This is really a fleshed out intricate game. So yeah, impressed by that. We talked a little bit about the grenades before, right? So the guy actually responsible for that is uh, Seamus Blackley. I think it's that's how you pronounce it. That's how I'm pronouncing it anyway. He well another. I mentioned some some flight sims before. Uh, they 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 worked on a lot of flight sim stuff, like a lot of people involved involved with this company, and and they were working on their own flight simulator called Flight Unlimited. This was actually the main project at Looking Glass. Like they were really betting on Flight Unlimited being the big hit. So yeah, these people making System Shock was a, like an afterthought, and they didn't really care too much about that because in their minds, Flight Unlimited was their main product. So actually they took the physics from that flight sim and put it into this game. So that's why it's so expensive, I guess. So so yeah, it's not just a really basic just throw the grenade and it follows the same path every time. No, this is why it's all the way it is. Because it's actually flight sim physics and not not shooter physics. Proper curves and mathematics, yes. Horrible. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now, the thing I read is that Warren Spector's role was mainly to be the liaison between the development team at Looking Glass and Origin, the publisher. Because apparently Origin, well, they thought this game would be smaller and simpler and it kept getting bigger instead. So Warren Spector spent most of his days just trying to convince Origin that this this was going well, this was going to be cool. Don't cancel it, please. And... Well, this this was an ongoing struggle. And apparently cyberspace was going to be a lot more, well, complex, I would say. And and yeah, one of the things that, that was the victim of this struggle was that cyberspace was simplified a lot. Uh, because Origin was just not, not getting it and not, yeah, they were not into it, apparently. I think they, they mostly just wanted a straight up shooter and yeah. That's not what this game is. is well, where's Doom? We want our, we want Doom in space. Yeah, we want our Doom. Make our Doom. Yeah, <laughs> that's really what they were thinking, I think. So cyberspace didn't really fit into that vision. They released the floppy disk version uh, September 1993. Does anyone have the actual floppy game? I, I think it comes on like nine discs or something. It's a lot of discs anyway. Yes, I'm seeing nine here, yeah. Then the CD version yeah. has the digitized speech on it that came later, which is a lot better, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's that's what I read as well, is that they they kind of regretted releasing the floppy disk version at all. Um, apparently, 
Origin was really adamant that they, well, they first of all wanted to make the September deadline and, and also they really wanted a floppy disk version out. Uh, I guess 1993, maybe not everyone had a CD-ROM yet, although it was also really, yeah. I think that a lot of CD-ROM games came out in these early 90s, so I don't know. But yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a disappointing version in hindsight, this floppy disk version. It doesn't have the speech. It doesn't have the, the high-definition graphics. Um, I mean, it's locked into, into a low VGA resolution, I think. You're stuck in 320 by 200 instead of 640 by 480. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I read a comment by Warren Spector that in hindsight he should have pressed on and and yeah, just just release the CD-ROM version and keep it at that and never. But oh well, that's that's hindsight. In December of the same year, December '93, that's when the the CD-ROM version came out. Only took a few months really to get from the floppy disk to the CD-ROM version. So that's kind of amazing. I guess this is when they fixed the bug with the random number generator. Mm. But more importantly, they added all the digitized speech. And even though they had the space for CD-ROM drive, they still didn't have enough space to record exactly what was coming on the screen. So people will notice that the voices are a little bit different to what they're reading. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, 700 meg is still only 700 meg in in the mid-'90s. Yeah, Yeah, that's a classic. I think that comes up in a lot of adventure games also, where the, the text on the screen is not exactly what is being said. It's also hard to to patch these speech things, you know. I mean, yeah, it's easy to make a change in the text, but then if you don't update the speech as well, then, well, a mistake is easily made. Mm-hmm. So, oh well. But yeah, this is this is basically how they how they put together uh, System Shock. It wasn't a massive commercial success, although it did get really good marks. But I think. They, they, they didn't sell a massive amount of copies. So I think all in all, the studio was, well, happy, but not through the roof uh, because of this game. But actually, they, they were sort of struggling with this for their whole career, the, the, the Looking Glass studio. I read that they developed a game in 96 called Terra Nova, which was an utter disaster, apparently, for them. Even though they sold well over 100,000 copies, it still didn't break even. And yeah, I don't know. I think they, they spent a lot of money on this and it just was a, a flop, basically. They also made more Flight Unlimited games, which was, in their mind, their main franchise. Flight Unlimited 3 was also a complete disaster. And, well, eventually the, the studio went bankrupt in 2000. So I think they're, they're mostly a victim of games getting larger and larger. And they they had to put in more money to keep up and and yeah, grander productions uh, without having the sales to really back that up. And then, well, eventually, it doesn't work. So even though most of their games are really impressive, I mean, Looking Glass is really remembered as a as a top quality studio. It's kind of sad to see them. Yeah, they've only been around for for eight years, all in all, and they made tons of great games. Well, luckily, uh, we had Warren Spector when when um, when Looking Glass was shut down. Warren Spector brought them all back in, and they became Ion Storm Austin, which mm. were responsible for Juice X. So uh, they were able to continue yeah. on. Mm. That's true. The good half of Ion Storm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I guess 
Iron Storm, in, in a way, is is the continuation of of Looking Glass, at least in part. Yeah, don't don't tell John Romero. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think John Romero was actually the one who who invited Warren, uh, Warren Spector over to Iron Storm. So, yeah, good to give him that respect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's the that's the whole thing. I was just looking at the credits for System Shock. There's 65 people in total on the team, which is, on the one hand, it's a lot for this time. Like back in those days, teams would be typically maybe 10, 20 people. And that would be like a large team, actually, 20 people. So 65 is a lot. But if you compare it with modern games, 65 is really a small team, isn't it? I I think... One of the games I played, like one of the AAA games I finished was um, Horizon Zero Dawn, which I think has a thousand people on the credits or something. So So they're not all in the core team, right? So they they buy middleware and integrate that. So it's... Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But I, I don't think those 65 are all the programmers either. I think that includes people at Origin, people doing the yeah. translations, people doing the manual and quality assurance, all that stuff. So I think I think there's like 10 programmers and, and six art people and, and a few more designers. And yeah, it's interesting to me that it's sort of a medium team. It's like not the super small indie three people doing everything. But it's also not hundreds of people and everyone is just a cog in a machine. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a nice middle ground, which you don't see that often, I feel. I'm afraid it's too late to save your friends. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> oh, guys? No, we're still here. I'm alive. <laughs> So, yeah. The cyborgs are knocking at the door. I don't know how long I can hold out. Uh. <laughs> I, I'd like to jump to the music, if that's okay, because that, that sort of ties in to, to this whole uh, who made the game and, and, and all that stuff. The music gets annoying quite quickly. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Ah. No, no. I had to turn it off after like an hour or so because I couldn't take it anymore. At least, I, I mean, maybe, maybe the instrumentation or the instruments changed from the original in the um, enhanced edition. There's just mm-hmm. uh, like this this one theme that's that's playing throughout the first couple of hours. There's there's one high pitched instrument that was really it was I don't know it was like like it was cutting my nerves. Mm. <laughs> I had I had to turn it off after a while. Yeah, it's it's sort of this electronic, well, dance music maybe not well, sort of. It's like this pulsating synthesizer stuff. I think I listened to to a few different soundtracks on YouTube. Um, the Opel the OPL three one maybe sounds better in a way, than the MIDI one. I think that what comes with the enhanced version is the MIDI one, played back by... Yes, the MIDI. Yeah. But the OPL version sounds kind of cool. Like, it's, it's yeah, it's more electronic, and it's more raw, and it's more... I don't know. I think it fits better, maybe. It's always a bit awkward to have MIDI playing these dance tracks, I feel. 
it's always a bit plasticky. I don't know. It's also kind of, um, especially the team in the medical sector, when you start, it's very like upbeat and punchy. And for a horror like atmosphere, it's kind of uh, weird at the beginning. Hmm. But yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about the music and the, and the whole sound design is that I guess some of the developers must have been good friends with a, a rock band called Tribe. Yeah. Because they just exactly. came to them and they picked up half of the team. So the, <laughs> the music and the soundtrack uh, for System Shock 1 was made by Greg Lopicolo. Mm-hmm. And so he, I think he designed most of the music. And then Terry Brosius, yeah. who was keyboard player and vocalist in the in the in the group of she actually became the voice of Shodan. So that's quite a feat because it's one of the more iconic parts of the game. And I think it really gives her the personality. Yeah, totally. And later actually, so uh the uh, Eric uh, Brosius was also in the group and he uh, married with Terry Brosius, and he made the music for System Shock 2. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Amazing. It's, uh, interesting. Yeah, it's bizarre. The thing I read is that um, there was this guy working at Looking Glass called Rex Bradford, and he was friends with Greg Lopicolo, who is uh, the bassist in this rock band tribe. And and he just invited him over one day. Just ah, oh, come and check out the company. It's cool. You play some, play some games. So so this bassist guy Greg he comes over just to check out uh, his friend Rex's workplace. And then they just randomly, spontaneously asked him, "Hey, want to do the music to our game?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> no need for interviews or anything." <laughs> No. <laughs> so yeah, and 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 you're right. Uh, the 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 same band's uh, a singer did the showdown voice. So it's like half the band doing doing the music to this games. Kind of funny. And also uh, the uh, actually the we spoke about how showdown like speeds in a glitchy way and uh, um and his distorted voice. And this, uh, Greg Lopicolo actually said that this was uh, uh, inspired a lot by the, um, so it was like uh, in the 80s, a virtual like VJ uh, in a TV show mm-hmm. called Max Headroom. And he actually spoke uh, like Shodan Speaks. So right. that's also kind of like, and I looked yeah. some videos and yeah, it's, it's uh, sort of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, the funny thing with Max Headroom is that I think a lot of people, I, I, he's like credited as the, the first uh, digital, the first virtual character or something. But he's not really computerized at all. I think he's just an actor with weird makeup. I don't think it's an actual computer model at all. It's just a guy in, in low res with lots of weird effects. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. But it's definitely worth checking out Max Headroom on YouTube. It's it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? And also, I think something to mention, I mean, Florian, come on, you have to admit that what is actually kind of cool is that the music changes, like, between what's going on. So I assume I would 
have to admit that if I hadn't turned off the music too early to notice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they call this dynamic music themselves. Uh, I've also read that it's uh, called, I've, well, other terms for it, adaptive music. Uh, it's sort of the same thing that happens in, um, in Monkey Island, right? Where they would, if you move to a different location, then parts are added or removed from the, from the music. This, this sort of is, has a similar system. Uh, it changes between levels, but it also changes like when enemies are approaching or, you know. So, yeah, in a way, the music tries to give you the same atmosphere as what you're experiencing. Although the, this doesn't really work in the opening section. <laughs> and everyone, of course, will remember the elevator music, which is this little jaunty, uh, you know, cabaret theme almost. Yeah. That you would have having a cruise ship or a horrible gaudy casino mm-hmm. that just is completely separated from the horror that is going on with the zombies and the robots outside. But yeah, because the elevator <laughs> yeah, is kind of like really a cool. safe space. You just it's, like yeah. go in there, lock the door, and like ah, oh, no, you could oh. not get killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think the elevator music was made by someone else. That was not the the tribe bass guy. It's not. It's not very rock. No. 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 So yeah. That's the uh, that's the music. Although the graphics are also really really impressive, I think that's really more the the focus because it's all it's all real full three D with textures and everything, which is well, that's like how all games are now. But that was really spectacular for for ninety four, wasn't it? Especially in two hundred and fifty six colors, it has lightning effects, it has transparency, sloped floors, and you can look up and down. It's yeah, it's. Something you would only see later in Descent came out the late the year after, so mm-hmm. uh, and Duke Nukem even two even years later. later yeah. and Duke Nukem really doesn't doesn't really do it. It's just a trick to Duke Nukem is, is really closer to what you would see in Doom. But mm. yeah, I think Quake is what what really popularized this um, this style. Yeah, but that's three years after this game. So yeah, and also. Um, uh the uh, environments actually in the they change quite a lot and since at, at the beginning you have these corridors hallways but later you have like greenery and in the later levels you actually have massive hallways like with a ceiling that is maybe 50 meters high and everything so there are like the engine was actually quite impressive for this, I guess. Yeah. One one thing that, um, just, just a minor thing, but that I didn't like so much was that the colors are all really saturated. Like, uh, it looks more like, like, like Wolfenstein 3D in proper 3D than, um, than like something like, like Doom, which has a lot where, where the, um, the lighting, lighting is, is really important for the mood of the game, something like that. Mm. Doesn't really happen in System Shock, I feel. So yeah, it's a little bright. It's a little, yeah. although it's also kind of dark because a lot of the lights don't work. Yeah, it depends on the places. Yeah, like, in level three, it's quite dark. You have invisible mutants. Right. Like, uh, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> well, at least the first couple of places that that I visited, they are all those are really bright colors, and yeah, it does doesn't really appear quite right. But yeah, I can't forgive that. Hmm. Maybe it's also a difference between the enhanced version and the original. I'm not sure. They did change the graphics a bit, I think. In the enhanced version, you can have any resolution. So it supports, like I played it in full HD. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, not for the HUD. Like the HUD is kind of like upscaled, but the action is actually. But I don't don't really think they changed the colors or anything. Like they didn't try to add some shaders or anything. Hmm. Right. Okay. Cool. So yeah, super advanced stuff going on. Maybe it's it's good to talk about some of the other things that happened later, like the sequels and the other versions, stuff like that. We we talked a little bit about the the sequel already, the System Shock Two. Maybe that's even more of a famous game than the original. I feel. I feel a lot of people really liked uh, System Shock Two, although I'm not sure if everyone played the original as well. I think by the time we got to System Shock Two, the um, the first person shooter controls are a lot more mature, and you're actually able to properly use WASD and mouse look, which made which makes playing the game a lot easier compared to System Shock One, where you are right. you, you're grappling with the control scheme at the best of times. Um, but yeah, System Shock 2 came out and I think a lot of people got onto that, even though it, it is a little bit more buggier and it's a, it's a slightly different experience. It's a bit more horror themed than System Shock, which is a little bit more brighter and mm-hmm. a bit more sillier. But uh, it's both, both System Shock and System Shock 2 are getting remade mm. as well. Um, obviously, we played the ex, ex, uh, the expanded enhanced. edition, the enhanced. <laughs> sorry, are you, I was looking for the word enhanced. Yeah, the enhanced edition of System Shock. Um, there is an enhanced edition of System Shock Two coming out as well. Cool, all with redone graphics and everything. They're based on community mods. Um, there was a limited run of the enhanced edition in a full big box. Nice, yeah, which is quite cool. I watched a video of um, a big box opening. That was uploaded the other day, I yeah. think, by one of the DOS Game Club members. Yeah, it was Tim, I think. He uh, he got the 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 um, yeah the limited run version. It's really nice. And uh, more recently, there has been uh, Night Dive Studios eventually acquired the licenses for System Shock, and they they started off a Kickstarter to do a reboot to do System Shock Remastered, and that's had uh, various issues. They wanted to. They had to read the read. They dropped using one of the engines. Had mm. to start again with a different engine. Um, they were thinking about making the game more dynamic, making it more like a roguelike, where the station was procedurally generated mm. rather than having it as fixed. Um, and that led them down a rabbit hole, which didn't work out for them. And they sort of had a little bit of a break from developing the uh, the mm. remastered version of this, but. Um, They've now since got back onto it, and uh, there is actually a demo now available to play of the remastered edition featuring the first medical level. Okay. And it looks very shiny and nice, and there are no more grenades, which makes lots of people happy. <laughs> and and this reboot, that's a different thing from System Shock 3, then? Yes. So that's a little bit more complicated. So uh, I read something about Tencent getting into publishing system shock 3 now so so um the, the head of the head of looking glass and Warren Spector, they got back together and they started um other side entertainment as in through the looking glass the other side nice and they put together underworld ascendant um which was basically ultimate underworld 3 and um they also planned to do system shock 3 mm. um and that's had various issues with funding and with um most recently the um the production company letting it go, and other side have now joined up with Ten Cent, yeah, um, to make the game. So it's it's unclear what this will mean. I mean, this is an ongoing thing. It's still very much up in the air, and um, 
a lot of people aren't particularly happy with Tencent taking over, but um, mm-hmm. time will tell, see if they make it or not. Let's, fingers crossed, let, let's let's have another System Shock game. Yeah, that would be really amazing. Like, And, and they did advance quite a lot. Yeah, but, yeah it's been definitely. development hell since forever. So if you if you go out on, on GOG right now, the version that you can buy and play, that's the enhanced edition, right? Yeah, and that's also available on Steam and the... It, the that will also give you the original game if you want to play it as it was at the time on the CD. Cool, right? Okay, that's that's I guess a good way for people to to check this game out. I mean, then you have the proper modern controls, but still the actual graphics from how it really was. So, yeah, that's kind of a nice, yeah, easy way to get into it. But yeah, there's there seems to be a lot of stuff in development because this this reboot is also. Well, apart from the demo, which you can play, but it's not, the rest is still in development, isn't it? They were planning to release Cyberspace in the demo, but they didn't get around to it. Um, I mean, Night Diver also working on the System Shock 2 remaster and probably lots of other things as well. Right. Um, but they're real, they real, it looks like they really are focused on getting this game out, which is good because uh, it was a little bit of development hell for a while. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting that this, yeah. Apparently, there's a lot of interest in System Shock now. Maybe more than there was at the time. So, yeah. It's, it's hard to tell what, what this will amount to at this moment. But I think, I mean, yeah. a lot of people play System Shock too, as you say, but also that System Shock has influenced so many games. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we can talk about Bioshock there. Um, Ken Levine worked on System Shock 2 and went on and did Bioshock and Bioshock... Uh, Infinite, with all the well, with with the shock name basically, mm-hmm. um, and there was also uh, a gentleman called Raphael Colantino who worked on the QA at Origin, um, who went and started Arcane Studios, who people at home will know made Dishonored and Prey. Mm-hmm. Um, Dishonored is a bit more like Thief, but Prey is called a spiritual successor to System Shock and has the main character in the game, Danielle Show, named after Shodan. Mm. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of 3D action games that are really heavy, story heavy, they have, yeah, they're they have a lot of they're they're, they're influenced heavily by System Shock. I think I think the whole genre, even stuff like Half Life or, well, basically any modern 3D game with a story is is half half of System Shock's systems are right there. It's kind of amazing how, yeah, what 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 an influence this had. Because I also read Ultima Underworld was kind of revolutionary, but I I don't hear that many people mentioning that game, and a lot of people people mention System Shock as their influence. It's a lot more difficult Ultima Underworld purely because of the the old school pen and paper note taking. I think mainly mm. it's um, not as interactive and it's not as you're you're on you're you're underground. You're talking with dwarves. You're fighting with snakes and orcs and things. It's very you know what you're getting into, basically. Whereas, yeah, I mean, right. so many things have been influenced by System Shock. You'll quite often see the code four five one in many of these games, and that's a reference to System Shock's first door code. Nice. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned this quickly before the show. There's a uh, where where is it? Oh, it's on Moby Games, right? Mm. 
there there's a list of games that um pay this this kind of tribute to system shock but we also figured out by now that there's one game missing because um the um communist doggy festo that Joshua made that is also listed on Moby Games it's not on this list yet and totally it should be has this it, yeah, that's a fun totally game. Should be. And and this game is <laughs> this game is really heavily inspired by System Shock. Yeah, yeah, and it's really replace Shodan, replace Shodan with um, Laika, the um, hyper intelligent dog from space. And <laughs> you get um, the Communist Doggy Festo. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll put a link up to that game along with the post. Everyone yeah, should play it. So yeah, at least tw- at least twenty games that. Um, refer to that four, uh, 451 code. Did you really think I would not deduce where you would run to insect? And just having that jump out to you in the game is just so cool. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I cannot under it. I cannot. I, I really think that Shodan is like one of the best villains around. Mm. Purely just by scaring the pants off you when you're walking through a corridor trying to find the healing chamber or the revitalization chamber so that if you die, you can get revived and you're on your last 10% of health and it's just all of a sudden yeah. a hacker and just, ah! <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's also a big difference to um, Gladys from Portal because Gladys is just chatting all the time and uh, you, you're never really surprised to hear her talk, but with Shodan. And also these quotes, like, now that I, uh, like, hear them, I remember, like, which parts of the game some of them were said, like... Uh, the nice jump when you manage to jump on a ramp and you need to use the booster skates. Or when your friends are dead and you just come to a room like, oh, please come help us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, too late. <laughs> so yeah, P- pretty sure that doesn't work yeah. with Gladys. Now, Josef, I saw in the forums that you actually found some reviews from the game, from for this game from, from well... Maybe you should explain it yourself. It's I'm looking at a magazine cover. Yeah, so uh, I, I did find some uh, reviews. System Shock, so yeah, on the cover of the magazine, they used a, a cyborg, but obviously not the one from the game. Because, well, although the game is amazing, the cover of the box is quite ugly. Yeah, mm. yeah so, uh, in a, so this was a Czech magazine, and... Um, the game received 94%. So uh, they described this is wow. basically like, this is how games will be in the future, which, well, they were right. Wow. Yeah. The, yes. Interestingly, they didn't <laughs> like criticize the controls. Um, so I guess a mouse look was not really uh, that used back then. No. I found uh, that there was actually a, another game before and that that had mouse look. Hmm. I don't remember the name, but so it was not like unknown, but yeah. No, I think Quake really popularized it though. I think before Quake. Doom Doom had it already, but it wasn't really the way Mouse Look worked later. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh and also they uh they mentioned this like uh no taking on the map. And yeah, that's something that I used quite a lot in the game as well. So. Hmm. And and I think like for example, this feature that that's missing in the modern games. Like usually, they try to some auto mark stuff, but yeah, I still like to be able to just jot on not. Yeah, yeah. I think in general, this game was received really well. 
just looking at some random magazine scores. It's all, I mean, yeah. Computer Gaming World giving it four and a half out of five stars. PC Format giving it 89%. PC Gamer in the UK giving it 90%. And the US edition even giving it 96%. So, yeah. This game was really getting great reviews. But despite that... And it also, it, it sold, it says on Wikipedia, it, it eventually sold 170,000 copies, which, well, it's not, it's not nothing, but I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot, but it's not like blockbuster levels of success. It's not that everyone had a copy of System Shock. There's a quote actually on Wikipedia. Uh, where Bill Hiles of GameSpy, he said, though it sold well, it never reached the frenzied popularity of Doom. They, Looking Glass themselves, Paul Neurath is a quote here. He says, the game was not a flop. <laughs> so that's, yeah. Well, I think this is kind of like the sort of a um, fate of these games, which are kind of specific, maybe a bit complicated. Because System Shock 2 also, it has, uh, it has sold, uh, only 60,000 copies mm. which is uh, like really not that man- many no. but it uh, it won uh, seven game of the year prizes it had like over nine uh, out of ten almost everywhere so these are the games like people who like them they really like them but they are not that they don't uh, like please the general crowd yeah yeah, it's like those films that that they get like twelve film festival awards, but nobody's seen them. It's yeah, it's a shame though. I mean, yeah, because for example, Deus Ex got popular, but I'm not even sure that the first Deus Ex was really uh, that successful. Bioshock mm. is the one that got really commercially successful, but that simplified the gameplay quite a bit. Yeah, and that was also much later. So by then, gaming became way more mainstream. Uh, also, more systems, I think, they could sell it on because Bioshock was ported to Xbox, PlayStation. Well, not PlayStation, maybe. I'm not sure, actually. But definitely ported to, to other systems as well. Yeah, it was ported to PlayStation. It was even ported to iOS. What? Apparently. Apparently, you, you can play Bioshock on your iPhone, I guess. I don't know. Oh, it's also on the Switch, I see now. So I, I, I think that helps to sell more copies, to have it out on, on all these different platforms, which, yeah, wasn't really a thing in the early 90s. Although, that said, I mean, games were ported to lots of different systems back then, but I guess 94 was really too late to be still releasing stuff on the Amiga and stuff like yeah, there's no way System Shock could run on an old home computer, could it? So there's really not a lot of systems where you could port it to back then. And particularly not if you want to include all of the digitized audio as well. Then you're looking for a CD-ROM device, which everyone was doing carts at the time. Yeah, so maybe the only option would have been the original PlayStation or something. But yeah, I'm not sure. The PlayStation, I don't think it was out in 94 even. It came out at the end of 94 i think like december or yeah. something like that maybe not not worldwide i don't know about that yeah 
But this game was never ported to the PlayStation. The sequel, not either. Uh, the, the System Shock 2 was also a PC-only game. So, yeah. Maybe that's one reason why, why the sales were as low as they were. Not sure. But. Oh, well. So, yeah. Lots of great reviews and, and, and not the sales to back it up. So, oh, well. I already said that if you want to get the game now, you get the enhanced edition, which adds better controls and stuff. Um, it's on GOG, it's on Steam. It's like like tenor or something. Though I, I think on GOG it's 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 on on sale like ninety percent of the time. <laughs> <laughs> What's the price? What's what, like uh, the sale? I, price? I think I paid. I think I paid like three euros. Oh, wow, that's amazing. That's honestly a great deal for this game. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is really an interesting game to check out if you're interested in in the history and the roots of a, yeah modern games. So. Three bucks, that's amazing. That's uh, definitely worth it. Um, did anyone take a look on, on eBay and see? Yeah, I just checked like a couple of minutes ago. Okay. And um, usually it's not too expensive. Like there are some games that, that you can pay like 80, 90 euros for in, in a box. But System Shock, if, if, if you're lucky, you can get it for 30 or 40 euros. Wow. So that's, that's not, not too bad, actually. Okay. But do you think it's it's difficult to obtain? Because, well, if it didn't sell a whole lot of copies, then obviously there aren't a lot of copies around. So yeah, I, when I checked, there there were a couple available. So huh. okay, it depends how much you're willing to pay on shop uh, on shipping. Actually, yeah, but you have to watch out that you get the CD-ROM version, though, because otherwise you don't get right. any of the speech, which I think affects the game a lot. I assume the floppy version is probably more expensive, though. <laughs> I haven't checked, but that's what I assume. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. Right. So, yeah. That's System Shock, I think. Welcome to the throne of God, mortal. Only the throne of God. She hasn't got delusions of grandeur at all. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> So yeah, did we forget anything? I mean, there's 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 a lot to talk about in this game, but no. Nope. Yeah, is there, is there anything major? Anything we should add? Any fun stories people have? Most of the conclusion, I guess. Yeah, what is the conclusion? I mean, this game, this is an amazing game. That's really the conclusion. Uh, it's a precursor to modern gaming, yeah. and it's it's really fun and. If you can get around the controls, then 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 it's even better. But which aren't really that bad in the enhanced edition. I mean, you still have to get used to switching between mouse yeah. look and and controlling stuff on the screen with your mouse. But besides that, it's not really that different yeah. from modern games. Yeah, exactly. And and yeah, you you can really see why some people refer to this game as as a milestone or uh, yeah in, in gaming. Really, you you can see so many uh, features and and things that are used in. Uh, many, many more games that that uh, originated from System Shock or were at least popularized by System Shock. So it's, yeah. it's really, really a, a stepstone game. Definitely. I wonder though, uh, for for David and Joseph, since you played the game uh, sort of when it came out, did you play it in between again, or like was it a long time since you played it? Uh, in my case, so I played it uh, first, then like I waited for a bit of two years, then I tried to play it normally. 
And then when the first enhanced edition came out, I started playing the game and then stopped after a while just because I for no reason in particular. <laughs> and then I actually picked up my save game two years oh. later for this uh, for this podcast and okay. continued from there. So so how do you feel? Like, was it like how you remembered it? Actually, for once, I guess it was even better. Wow. But probably because of the enhanced graphics uh, at some point. And also the voices, because... I said when I played it uh, back then, uh, I didn't have the CD version. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really, I really didn't feel at all that I was playing some old game. Like that's one thing, like with the new control scheme, I was just, I really could just get into it and uh, like spend hours and then like... uh, regret not going to sleep sooner because of the game and so on. So yeah, for me, it was definitely yeah. very impressive. Oh, that's cool. How was it for you, David? Yeah, so I mean, I, I tried to play it uh, a few times in the years between when I first picked it up, but I, I'm, I'm a very timid person and I, I really actively do not like horror elements in games and I, I do tend to get put off by them. Mm. And... um yeah, quite a few times I would. I said, I want to play System Shock again, and I just get too freaked out by it. And I said, no, I don't want to invest time here. I'll go off and play something that's bright and happy. Yeah. But, um, I mean, this time around it was really good. Um, I went through and completed the game properly at a proper difficulty level. Um, I think well, I got lucky a few times. Part of the game, as we mentioned before, is finding these cyborg conversion chambers, and I think the level of happiness you experience in the game is how quickly you find each one of these on each level. <laughs> and I think quite a few times I got lucky and, and um, on level seven I got rather unlucky and, and had a huge amount of trouble finding it and almost basically explored the whole level before I had to go and look up where it was to f- and, and, right. and go and find it. And um, I really was not having a fun time there at all because level seven is essentially um, one of the hardest levels in the game mm. and I was just not having fun at that point. But um, it, it's it's so many of the little things in the game. Just even just like the little patches you can get, you can get a berserk patch which increases your melee strength. But then afterwards, it it it, it bumps up your hormones so much that it affects your colors, and you start seeing psychedelic colors everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Just little things like that. You, know, you you can put a patch on to increase your night vision, but then after a little while, you just can't see much at all as a side effect. And um, <laughs> It's the little things in the game. You go, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's also what you get from these smaller teams, I feel. Because everyone can really put in their own thoughts, you know, and everyone, there's room for everyone's ideas. While I think in these really large productions, people are just expected to churn out models and yeah. There's 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 less room for this kind of character and heart, uh, so that's something I really appreciate in in a lot of these old games. Really, it's just how full of character they are. And I mean, you, part of the game is just so tense at times, particularly when you're trying to find those revitalization chambers, or say if you're going through the the, vo- the groves where the virus is. If you die in one of the groves, there you don't get revived at all. So you're on you're on tenderhooks the whole time. 
you're tense, you're nervous, there's enemies spawning around you everywhere and you've got to get in and get out quickly. And it's that level of tenseness is is just so is so good. And I don't think other games do it as well. Yeah. That's that that sounds really exciting. I didn't get that far really, but I'm sort of the same way though. I'm I I generally avoid like intense and scary things and I rather just have something calm and, and relaxing and yeah. I I mostly just watched other people play this because I can't <laughs> I can't really handle it. But uh yeah, it does seem it's it does seem interesting to to maybe play it on a lower difficulty or something just to check out the whole thing because it's definitely really very interesting. Um either either way, um I totally recommend the, playing the game, but if you actually want to enjoy it, you need to also devote uh, quite some time to it. It's not a game that you can just uh, jump into, play for half an hour, and then continue the next day. So, mm. I, I think if you really want to take in the yeah. the whole atmosphere and all of that, then this game is best played in sessions of a couple of hours, yeah, at a time. Exactly, and that's something you you really need to make time for. That's Mostly the reason why I didn't play it much for much more because I rarely have many hours. Yeah, at once. <laughs> so. so if you're a kid and you have lots yeah, of time, exactly. play this. Yeah, I wonder if we have kids listening. I hope not. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> if you're a kid, go to bed. <laughs> okay, but Marta, it's five o'clock in the morning. Just <laughs> Doesn't <go>. matter. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, that that's System Shock, I think. Yeah, really cool game. Check it out. Yep, absolutely. So, do you want to quickly just mention what's going on with the club, Florian? Yeah, like always, the club is never sleeping. <laughs> We're playing more games. We actually just finished our pinball month, which um, was a time when we played how many? 13? 14, 20, every every single pinball, yeah, a, a trillion, a trillion pinball games. All the pinball games. That's that's going to be in the next episode. So that's that time is over. But since we're actually ca- catching up with our episode schedule now, um, the next game for June, which is Gateway, our very first text adventure, you might actually still be able to play it when this episode comes out. Mm-hmm. In July, we are going to play a platformer, which is Jill of the Jungle, also a classic. And in August, we're currently having a poll um, to figure out which um, real-time strategy game we're going to play. And the two options are Z or KKND, which Mm -hmm. are both very special games. And if you, I guess by the time this episode comes out, the poll is closed. So you will probably just have to look at our Twitter page to find out which game it is. At the moment, Z is slightly in the lead, but that can change on a daily basis. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was time for another RTS. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been two years. Yeah, and we had Command & Conquer and Warcraft 2 on before, so we felt we should have an RTS that's not by Blizzard or by Westwood. So yeah. that's why, yeah, that's why these are the options. Interesting, I haven't played either, so I'm fine with any of these. Yeah, cool. So if, you, if, you, if you're into this DOS stuff, 
come join us. Head over to dosgameclub.com, our website, where you can post on the forums, suggest games, just talk about what's going on. You can also chat with us on IRC. We have a chat room on Afternet called Dos Game Club. And you can also join the chat room through the website. So you don't have to set up an IRC client if you don't want to. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter where we're called Dos Game Club and we uh, share our episodes and other Dos stuff and, and well, the, the, like these polls, for example, that we're running them on Twitter as well. And last but not least, if you're listening to this in a podcasting app, then please leave a review and a rating and, and yeah, really love to see that stuff. And it helps to get the show promoted to other people as well who might be interested. So yeah, that helps. Also, send us voice messages. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, do that. Send them through email to club at doskenclub.com. Just say something in your phone or whatever, send it off, and yeah, really happy to receive them. So yeah, thanks again, RFR, for sending the one in this episode, and I hope we receive many more in the future. Yep. So yeah, that's it. Uh, thanks a lot for, for, for being here and talking uh, yep. about this game with us. Many thanks. Yeah. Thank you, and uh, see you on the Von Braun. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's been a pleasure. Have fun out there, everyone. Thanks. Bye. We'll try. Bye. 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 Yeah. <laughs>